0: I just love seeing you all come in like this. He's
1: talking about the new refiners joining the Severed Patreon page. Just $5 a month and no cranial drill required. Go to patreon.com slash severed pod.
2: Okay, you're all set. Severed, the
0: ultimate severance podcast.
1: Welcome, Macro Data Refiners, to Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. I'm your host, Alan S. Severed is a comprehensive deep-dive rewatch podcast covering all of the first season of the Apple TV Plus series Severance. This is an episode-by-episode rewatch, but we will call forward as well as back. If you haven't already finished all nine episodes of the first season of Severance, you might want to do that. Before you start this podcast, since this is our first time to gather, there are a number of people we have to meet and principles of the world to be introduced. There was so much information, it was decided upstairs we should only take today's file to 50%. The rest will be discussed the next time we gather in The Good News About Hell, Part 2. Severance is a beautifully constructed puzzle box. It's an incredibly detailed world full of mysterious weirdness. One of the things I love about Severance is how it feels like a classic graphic adventure game. The way we map out the severed floor, the secrets of Lumen being slowly revealed, the quirky characters, the interestingly retro computer equipment. It all feels like an episode of a Sierra Online game or the incredible Mist graphic adventure puzzle from back in the 90s. And like those classic adventure games, Severance also comes with a booklet. Remember how there'd always be a booklet in with the Space Quest discs or that booklet that came with Myst? In a few pages, these printed add-ins to the game would give you the story, setting up the adventure you were about to undertake. It also gave you some basic operating instructions, a few hints, and a little background about the world you were entering. Severance has the same kind of instruction booklet. It's called the Lexington Letter. You don't have to read The Lexington Letter in order to enjoy watching Severance, but I really believe you will enjoy Severance more if you do read The Lexington Letter. The Lexington Letter was actually written by series producer Ben Stiller as a teaser for the series. It was not the promotional tease you might expect. Instead, it's an explanation of the premise of the show. In interviews, the producers have mentioned several times how worried they were no one was going to get the premise. The Lexington Letter lays out the effects of the severance procedure in detail. The e document of the letter was first made available in January of 2022. It dropped for free in the Apple Books app, so, a brilliant stroke of corporate cross promotion with Apple TV. Kier Egan would be so proud. The Lexington Letter was free and led the premiere of the first severance episode by a few weeks. You can still find the Lexington Letter in Apple Books and download it for free. If you have an Apple device like an iPhone or an iPad, you probably have Apple Books already installed. The Lexington Letter is a total of 43 pages. About half of that is the text of the letter. The other half is an incredibly interesting internal lumen document for severed workers called the Macro Data Refiners Orientation Booklet. The Lexington letter was written by a severed Lumen employee from the Topeka office who managed to both make contact with her inny and then escape from Lumen. She's writing to a reporter at the local newspaper as a Lumen whistleblower. In the document, we get to see the internal newspaper emails talking about the letter along with the body of the letter. This severed employee was also able to spirit a copy of the orientation booklet off the severed floor. Several reviewers have noted the Lexington letter is not nearly as well written as this series. This may be true, but you have to remember this letter is supposed to be from a former school bus driver, now on the run from Lumen. I think she can be forgiven for not being the most eloquent. The graphics in the orientation booklet are a lot of fun. The look and layout perfectly skewers the look of corporate handbooks produced by huge companies back in the 80s and 90s. These days, instead of a printed document, you'd expect to find something like the orientation booklet on a company website or distributed as a PDF attachment to an email. The orientation booklet also gives you more background on macro data refining and what's expected from a severed Lumen employee. Some commenters have said you should wait until you're four or five episodes into the series before you read the Lexington letter. I don't agree. You should really read it first, if possible, before you get into the series. It lays the groundwork for the severed concept and explains it in detail. After you're four or five episodes in, maybe give it another look. Certain things you didn't understand the first time around will make more sense the second time you read them. If you don't have an Apple device or you can't find the Apple Books app, I've created a PDF of both the Lexington Letter and the Handbook for your use check the show notes for a link i highly recommend you read it but even if you don't now you'll at least know what i'm talking about when i mention something coming from either the orientation booklet or the lexington letter okay now that we've covered the lexington letter and the orientation booklet let's get into the first episode (laughs) Our episode title is Good News About Hell, written by series creator Dan Erickson with the able assistance of staff writer Anna Oyang Munch. It was directed by Ben Stiller. Ben is a producer, but he winds up directing six of the nine episodes in season one. He said he didn't set out to direct that many, but he really got into it. This episode was first released by Apple TV Plus on February 18th of 2022. This is series creator, writer, and showrunner Dan Erickson's first attempt at anything in the writing or producing realm. He was a scriptwriter hoping to break into TV when he came up with the basic severance idea more than five years before the show went into production. At the time, he was not working in television. He was at a mind-numbing corporate job and thinking how great it would be if he could turn off his brain for those hours while he was at work. The severed concept grew out of this initial thought until a script wound up on Ben Stiller's desk. Thankfully, Stiller's production company was very supportive of the severance idea and backed its very long development. We fade up on a woman lying on a conference table shot straight down from overhead. It takes a second to key in on what you're seeing. This is the cold open of episode one, and it's a great use of the cold open. It really draws you in. As a bonus, we're also going to experience this cold open a little later on, only from the other side of the glass. Some reviewers have said the conference table looks like either a womb or a tomb. Well, since production designer Jeremy Hindle and series creator Dan Erickson have both referred to this imagery as being like a womb, I'm going with table as womb. Interestingly, in a Vanity Fair article, Ben Stiller said... Dan told him he really wanted the overhead shot of the table, but he didn't say anything about it being womb-like. Even without the womb imagery, director Stiller liked the idea of the overhead as an establishing shot. He says he uses overhead shots sparingly because they make such a big statement, but this one was important. Since the ceilings are low in the sound stages, getting this shot almost required pulling the ceiling of the set. Cinematographer Jessica Ligagne said they had to get right up to the ceiling in order to get this shot. A quick aside about severance jargon. Many of the words and phrases used on the severed floor are simplistic and juvenile. In the Lexington Letter, the writer is surprised by how young and naive her alter ego sounds when writing to her from the severed floor. It's because, as she says, innies have no frame of reference, much like young children. And yes, that term is In the Lexington letter, the author uses the terms for the two states of a severed employee. They also happen to be kid terms for your belly button, innie and outie. The innie is the part of your consciousness that exists only on the severed floor. Your outie, as you can probably guess, is the you that exists outside of the severed floor away from work. This is the first time this young lady with the fiery red hair has been conscious after her severance surgery, so this is the first time anyone is meeting her Any, This is an interesting place to recover from a surgical procedure. Rather than come to on a gurney or in a hospital situation, she's been laid sprawled out on top of this womb-like conference room table. As it says in the orientation booklet, the severance procedure just takes a few minutes and recovery is immediate. So we can assume this tabletop rebirth has become some sort of standard practice for all newly severed employees. The only other thing on the table is a small speaker like an intercom. It's situated at the head of the table. The opening shot is very colorful. Colors have huge meaning within the world of severance and especially inside lumen. The conference room table sits in a field of green, which is surrounded by a yellow band. We'll see this pattern again later in other places around the Lumen office building. The young lady on the table is wearing a solid blue sweater. According to the office dress code section of the orientation booklet, the only colors that may be worn on the severed floor are black, white, navy, gray, and pastels. After being given the dress code, innies are promptly told they can forget it. The Innie is dressed by their Audi, and the Audi has also been given dress code information. The Innie doesn't have to remember the dress code, because if you think about it, the Innie has no choice when it comes to what they wear. The three colors, red, blue, and green, are used throughout the season. The current severance chip is red at one end and blue at the other. One of the prototype chips used green instead of red. Red and blue being separated by some dividing line is a regular staging theme in many shots. Using green as a safe space or a buffer between red and blue is also pretty common. I'll point these color combos out sometimes, but they are so prevalent, I'm going to let a few of them go by. The first voice we hear comes from the speaker on the table. We actually hear the first voice in black before we ever come up on a picture. Who are you? If you're writing a severance term paper, here is your thesis statement. Who are you? The entire show is asking about the you you are, to quote Rickon. What are we like when we are our work self? Does our work self differ from who we are outside of work? What if the two became mutually exclusive people within the same body? The young lady on the table is the character Heli R. Her name is also a subtle reference to the title of the episode. Helly is being played by Britt Lauer. Britt is an American actress from the tiny village of Hayworth, Illinois. Hayworth is just outside of Bloomington Normal in the middle of the state. Britt started her acting career with a short in 2008. Her first regular series role was on 2010's Big Lake. She's had both one-off guest star roles and regular series cast roles ever since. Britt recurred on 13 episodes of TV series Unforgettable and 30 episodes of the series Man Seeking Woman.
2: We have an idea.
0: We want to set you up. Okay, that's very cute, girls, but I'm not looking to be set up right now. I hate to say it, Liz, but at your advanced age of a million, it seems to me you don't have
2: as much time as you think. That's enough, girls. You may be too young to understand this, but finding a man and getting married is not all that life has to offer. And if I do get married and have a family, it will be because the timing is right for me, and not because I was pressured into it by a bunch of second graders.
0: And by the way, 29 is nowhere close to a million. You need to brush up on your math.
1: She has a total of 51 acting credits on her IMDb profile at the time of this recording. Most are on TV, but she even picked up a video game voice in 2020. Britt said in an interview with Variety, this was the most freeing role she's ever played. She said she woke up on the table as a character with absolutely no backstory. Oh, and she was pissed. The voice from the speaker seems a bit confused. I'm
2: sorry, I got ahead of myself.
1: It starts again with the fake cheeriness of an amusement park ride host.
2: Hi there, you on the table? I wonder if you'd mind taking a brief survey.
1: Helly looks like she's coming to from a bad hangover. She rubs the back of her head, which seems to be a source of some discomfort. We get a POV shot coming from the speaker. This is our first red-blue color combo of the show. Helly's very red hair sitting on top of the very blue sweater is a reminder of the severance device. Helly's interacting with the speaker voice, but she's also still looking very suspicious. The voice continues with banter so forced, It must be a pre-written script.
2: Now, I know you're sleepy, but I just bet it'll make you feel right as rain. Who's speaking?
1: Helly climbs down off the table. We get a better look at the walls. They have a rich corporate feel, but they also appear to be padded in some places. Helly starts to stalk around the room. The only door in the room is behind the head of the conference room table. It's locked. Ellie begins to push on the walls, looking for a way out. She's also none too thrilled with the chipper voice continuing from the speaker.
0: I'm not taking your survey.
1: She's looking under the table. She circles the table and winds up back at the door.
0: Let me out of here.
1: Her frustration spills over to become a fight with the locked door. Hey! She's pulling on the handle, twisting it. The unseen voice seems to know a new severed worker might wake up in an aggressive mood. This explains the intercom and locked door. The voice seems to be waiting, letting Helly get some of the fight out of her before she can leave the room or before anyone comes in. Helly finally loses her grip on the door handle and falls to the green carpet. She's out of breath. We cut to a shot of the tabletop and the tiny speaker. There's a pause, then we see Helly peer over the edge of the table. Hey. Beaten for the moment, she agrees to take the voice's survey. Without any seeming leverage, Helly tries a little negotiating. What do I get at the end? The voice tells her it will all depend on her answers. The voice from the speaker starts again.
2: Who are you? That's the first question. First name will do.
1: Helly hasn't done an internal inventory. She woke up and immediately went into this aggressive attack mode. Not a lot of time to think about issues of self while you're trying to find a way out. As Helly pauses to consider the question, Britt Lauer has a beautiful moment of realization. You can see her face change as she looks inward. She can't even come up with a first name for herself. I don't...
2: It's okay. If you can't answer the question, feel free to say
1: unknown. This realization that she doesn't know her own name is devastating to Helly. We can see it all over her face. On the other hand, it's exactly what the voice seems to have been hoping for. What is this? Okay, unknown. They hold on a great shot of the tiny monitors sitting on the tabletop as the voice from the speaker continues.
2: Question two. In which U.S. state or territory were you born?
1: Helly stares into space trying to come up with an answer. She knows she should know this one.
2: Wait. Which state or territory, please? I, I don't know. Unknown.
1: We can feel Helly's frustration. The questions continue.
2: Question three. Please name any U.S. state or territory first that comes to mind. Hell,
1: he does come up with an answer on this one.
2: I don't know. Delaware. What is this?
1: Question four is confusing.
2: What is Mr. Egan's favorite breakfast?
1: At least it's confusing right now. This one flew by me the first time I watched, but it hit me in the face on second viewing. Egan is, of course, a very important and powerful name in the world of severance. We're going to get into all of this in greater depth as we move through the episodes, but in a nutshell, the Egan family created Lumen Industries shortly after the end of the Civil War. The founder and first CEO, Keir Egan, seems to have created some sort of cult as part of the business of Lumen. Lumen was first a manufacturer of pharmaceuticals and toiletries. The writer of the Lexington Letter mentions how she'd purchased Lumen brand deodorant for years. Now, Lumen appears to also be into tech. Real-world crossovers to Lumen might be companies like Procter & Gamble, AT&T, Johnson & Johnson, or General Electric when it comes to the long history and immense scope of the company. The cult of personality that seems to surround Lumen has real-world parallels to tech gurus like Bill Gates and Microsoft or retail savants like Sam Walton at Walmart and kind of funny coming from a show distributed by Apple TV, but Lumen also seems to be skewering Steve Jobs, who created an incredibly powerful cult surrounding Apple. Also, and remember how you were warned about spoilers, nothing is off-limits. We find at the very end of the season, Helly is actually an Egan. She's the daughter of current CEO, James Egan. And that's James, not James. She decided to be severed very publicly as a way to help remove the societal stigma surrounding the severance procedure. The breakfast question might be referencing Heli's father, but more likely it's a reference to known information about the lore of founder Kier Egan. At the start of episode 2, we're in flashback. The unsevered Heli is talking to Milchik as they are walking through the main atrium hallway of the Lumen building. When they pass the giant relief sculpture in the atrium... Milchik mentions Cure Egan's favorite breakfast was three raw eggs and milk. Audi Helly knows this answer but it doesn't occur to any Helly.
2: I don't that one makes no sense. Right? Unknown.
1: The voice continues to the 5th question.
2: And as a reminder this is the final question. To the best of your memory what is or was the color of your mother's eyes?
1: This one is truly devastating for Helly. Not knowing her own name was bad, but realizing she has no memory of her mother is crushing. She takes a long moment, looking on the verge of tears as she searches her memory. Okay, what's, ha- what's
2: happening? Unknown.
1: The speaker then runs down Helly's score, such as it is.
2: So that's unknown, unknown, Delaware, unknown, unknown.
1: What the hell did you do to me? Helly is speaking to the monitor on the desk. She's startled by the sound of the door opening. Helly's still on the floor from her earlier fight with the door. She skitters away from the opening and lands in the yellow band running around the green on the floor. We get a reverse angle over Helly's shoulder. The door is open and a male figure wearing a suit and tie is standing in the shadows. The room behind him looks to be smaller and the floor he's on is above the level of the conference room floor. There's a cut closer in on the figure, then a reverse to a frightened-looking Heli. We cut back to the shot over Heli's shoulder and hear... That's a perfect score. This is an attempt to be disarming and friendly, but the effect is a bit ominous. The speaker is in the shadow, standing above the frightened Heli, who is still on the floor. We get one last cut to Heli, still out of breath and visibly frightened. Under her ragged breathing, we hear one of Severance's signature sounds fade in. The screen cuts to a green field and the word severance reversed out in white. That's it for an opening sequence in this episode. Pilots don't get fancy opening animations. They will make up for it with episode two. The opening sequence is fantastic and we will spend a lot of time on it. While still holding on the word severance, we hear a man sobbing. This is deep down and gut wrenching. The screen fades to black as the sobbing continues. We hold on the black for a couple of seconds, then fade up on a spy shot of a car windshield. We can see a man sitting in the driver's seat. He's the one we've heard sobbing. The moaning wind sounds cold. We cut to inside the car, getting even closer to the crying man. He reaches into the seat beside him for a tissue. The cut to close-up gives us a glimpse of his ID badge. This is Mark Scout. He works for Lumen Industries, and his ID says he has severed access. Mark looks a lot happier in the picture on his ID than he does now sitting in his car. His eyes are puffy and red, with bags under them from prolonged hours spent crying. In a shot over Mark's shoulder, we can see a large building looming in the distance. He tries to dry his eyes with tissue and checks the effect in his rearview mirror. Mark pulls his sleeve back to reveal a cheap chronograph-style watch. It's straight up 9 a.m. Mark slips the ID lanyard over his head and gets out of his car. We can see his breath as he adjusts his parka. We cut to a wide-angle shot of a packed parking lot. Packed with cars, that is. Hundreds of cars are parked in almost every spot, but not a single other person can be seen. The long shot pans up as Mark treks towards a monolithic building. It is revealed to be an enormous glass structure hulking on the horizon. It appears to be in a remote setting. There are lakes on either side, and a huge expanse of forest stretches off in the distance. As Mark trudges on, we need to pause here to introduce you to a couple of very important players in the world of Severance. First is the man playing Mark Scout. This is Adam Scott. Fans of the mockumentary hit series Parks and Recreation will recognize Adam immediately. We need the Pawnee Police Force
2: to volunteer as security during the upcoming Harvest Festival. Now, the city won't let us throw the festival unless... Say no more.
1: Just send me a schedule of how many officers you need and when.
2: Really? Just like that? Leslie nope. gets as many favors as she needs.
1: You probably also recognized Adam's voice on the intercom in the cold open. Adam has been working in Hollywood since 1992 when he appeared in the REM music video for Drive. Adam was first really noticed as Griff Hawkins in the 1994 TV series Boy Meets World.
2: Here I am punctual as is my way, yet I do not see the object of my despise. So, I guess you were sent up for bad grammar? (laughs) This is Griff? (laughs) Where's the rest of them? So, Brando, I hear you want to pound me.
1: He had a number of guest star shots on series throughout the late 90s and early 2000s, he did his seven-episode recurring character on Party of Five, and he was Philip the Coffee Boy on seven episodes of Wasteland. Adam has more than 120 credits on his IMDb profile, covering 30 years. He did 20 episodes of Party Down in 2009. His 96-episode run on Parks and Rec began in 2010. Um, excuse me,
2: how did you guys get your hands on this game? Someone sent it to us. Have you played it? I invented Cones of dungeon. You're the
0: architect? Yeah, right. And I'm the alchemist of the hinterlands.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Can't be an alchemist of the hinterlands. The hinterlands is a shadow kingdom that can only sustain a provost or a
1: denier. Adam has made a name for himself lately by choosing quality projects. Well, if you don't include Piranha 3D. Recently, he was a part of The Good Place and Big Little Lies for HBO. Because the development cycle for Severance was so long, Adam happened to take another gig, which has also taken off as a streaming hit. Adam plays the supporting character John Novak in the Myle Rudolph comedy, Loot. The part of Mark Scout was not specifically written with Adam Scott in mind, but he was the first person Ben Stiller thought of after reading this script. Adam was first contacted by Ben about playing this role all the way back in 2017. Adam said it was a dream, the part he'd always wanted to play. It was everything that appealed to him when it came to a good story, plus all of this incredible writing. He told Entertainment Weekly in an interview he was just sure Ben Stiller would come to his senses and find another actor to play the role. As Adam said, a real star. Thankfully, Ben stayed with his original vision and things worked out with Adam's schedule. Adam Scott is also a producer on Severance. The other important player you need to meet in this scene is the massive office building that houses Lumen. This appears to be the headquarters of Lumen, but it's never specifically identified that way. We know from the Lexington letter Lumen had a severed operation going in Topeka, so this may just be one of Lumen's many massive office buildings, but it is a huge thing. When I first saw it, I figured this building was a CGI creation. It's not. This is an actual building. It's known as the Bell Works, or more properly, the Bell Labs-Holmdel Complex. The more than 2 million square foot six-story monolith was designed by famed Finnish architect Eero Saarinen. Designed in 1958, construction began in 1959 and was completed by 1962. It was one of Saarinen's last projects. If the name Saarinen sounds familiar as an architect, it might be because of one of his most famous monuments. The 629-foot-tall Gateway Arch in St. Louis, Missouri was a Saarinen design. Starting in 1962, the Holmdel Complex housed 6,000 executive and research workers for Bell then AT&T, and finally Lucent. In 2006, after 44 years as an office and research facility, it was sold to a real estate developer. It was given a $27 million facelift in 2013. Today, the complex is a multi-purpose living and working space used by high-tech startup companies. The building is on the National Register of Historic Places. One of its unique claims to fame... The science of radio astronomy was invented on this site when it was a part of Bell Labs. Ben Stiller said the unique architecture and massive scale of the Bell Labs location was inspiration for the design of the severed floor. The entire first season of Severance was filmed like a massive nine-hour movie. Scenes for the entire season were shot based on location, so everything was out of order. The scenes here at the Bell Labs location were the last one shot for the season. Catching back up to Mark, we're now in the spectacular main hallway of the Holmdel complex. There's a tilt down after we get a look at the incredible atrium ceiling. The central atrium spans nearly a quarter mile from one end of the building to the other. Mark presents his ID badge at a large horseshoe shaped security desk where a woman in a gray suit coat is sitting. She picks up what looks like a very modern phone receiver.
2: Are you ready for Mr. Scout?
1: There's a long pause before she then says... Thank you. The chairs in the receiving area are in neutral green. Green and blue are both considered calming colors in a corporate setting... Green especially comes up a lot in the design of Lumen. It seems to indicate a safe space in the world of severance, but it also might indicate a severed space. Mark is given the okay to go ahead. We cut to a long overhead shot looking straight down at reception. The desk itself is in a field of green. A wide band of yellow surrounds the desk, which is then surrounded by another band of green. The carpet design looks like a much larger version of the conference room from the cold open. In the age of digital recoloring and retouching, I figured the reception area had been lumined up with a color makeover in post. Nope, it's refreshing how much of what we see throughout this series is a practical effect happening right before our eyes. In order to get the color scheme right in the Bell Labs reception area, the Severance crew recarpeted the entire area for this down-angle shot. In an interview with Set Decor Magazine, Andrew Baseman said as a general rule, they would use blue carpet... In offices and common spaces that were non-severed, they tried to use green carpet in severed spaces. This reception area is on the main atrium level. Maybe it's green because it's the severed reception area. As we follow Mark's progress through the incredible main hall, he passes a relief of a huge head looking to the left. This head is easily 30 feet high on a wall that goes from the floor to the ceiling of the six-story tall atrium. Some theories say this relief sculpture is a nod to sci-fi pioneer Philip K. Dick. Many of the big ideas in Severance can be found in Dick's work. Is it Philip K. Dick? Eh, maybe. It looks like some images of Dick who had a white beard later in his life, but as we'll find out, this is very definitely Keir Egan. Unlike the empty parking lot, dozens of employees can be seen walking around inside the building. They're all sporting the same ID on the lanyard we saw Mark wearing. Mark heads down a flight of stairs. He passes into a fluorescent lit stone panel lined hallway marked by a tiny sign that says SVR apostrophe D access. They don't even write out the word severed and they aren't using apostrophes correctly. Is Lumen a bit ashamed of this particular program? Based on what we find a large portion of society thinks about the severance process, maybe they are. Mark passes through a final security controlled access door into a locker room. A bench sits in front of the lockers. The cushion on the bench, covered in the same green vinyl we saw in reception and in the outer conference room. There are nine lockers. Mark's is in the middle of the row. It looks like there might be a symbol on the door of the lockers. Mark opens the locker and begins to change. He takes off his wet boots and replaces them with dry dress shoes. His chronograph-style watch goes into a drawer and is swapped with a watch that only has hash marks on the face. Mark also swaps the ID badge with his name on it for a solid blue card with only the lumen droplet on it. As we found in the Lexington letter, this must be due to the code sensors in the elevator. Anything with an actual number or letter on it in the elevator would set off the code sensors. We can see the end of Mark's driver's license in a clip he places in the drawer. The graphics don't look like a Pennsylvania, New York, or New Jersey license. Checking the dates, Mark's birth date appears to be the same as Adam Scott's, April 3, 1973. His license was issued in April of 2020. The Audi world of Lumen seems to be modern day. The Any world is timeless. There's something very ceremonial to Mark's transition from his outside self to the self he becomes to go to work. This is again feeding into the central theme of severance. Who are we and does who we are change depending on where we are? A security officer is sitting at a desk by a very narrow elevator door. The arrow above the elevator only points down, indicating we are at the very top of this elevator shaft. Even after all of the security to this point, Mark is now given a once-over with a hand scanner by the security guard. He spreads his arms with a practiced weariness. Mark uses his solid blue ID card to open the elevator. He then puts the lanyard over his neck. We cut to a straight-on shot of Mark's face. He looks right back at us, straight into the camera. The elevator begins to whir. As we hear the whir get louder, Mark seems to physically change. His head narrows and stretches out from top to bottom of the screen. We hear the ding of the arriving elevator, and the transition is complete. Although this looks like some sort of CGI morphing of Adam Scott's head, Ben Stiller explained in an interview, it's purely cinematography. The cameras on the severed floor had to use a shorter focal length lens with a wider field of view due to the tighter spaces. The cameras used outside of Lumen were able to use a more natural focal length. What you're seeing in the elevator is a transition from one lens to the more forced perspective of another. The technique being used is called a dolly zoom, or zolly shot. This practical effect was invented by famed director Alfred Hitchcock for the movie Vertigo. With a dolly zoom, as the name implies, the lens of the camera is zoomed, either in or out, as the camera itself is moved in the opposite direction on a dolly. Going down, the camera moves in towards the subject as the lens is zoomed out. The net effect is a minimization of the background, while the performer gets larger and more pronounced in the foreground. Going up, the reverse happens. The camera is rolled away from the subject as the lens zooms in. There's nothing computer generated and nothing physical is actually happening to the severed employee. It's an old school and very effective method for changing how we see the employee through the focal length of the lens being used. As Mark arrives on the severed floor, we hear a snazzy little tune with a samba beat start to play. It has the feel of something from the 50s or 60s. It's very upbeat and positive. Sometimes Severance uses classic or current music cuts to highlight a scene. All other music for Severance, like this walking piece, is being custom-produced by composer Theodore Shapiro. Shapiro got his start in composing for film and television on the sketch comedy show The State. Throughout his career, Shapiro has crossed paths with Ben Stiller. He's done a number of projects for Red Hour Productions, like the soundtrack to 2006's Blades of Glory, Shapiro has also done the music for stiller starring vehicles like The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Dodgeball, Tropic Thunder, and Zoolander 2, just to name a few. Shapiro has 89 composer or soundtrack credits dating back to 1993. Mark begins an almost absurdly long trek through the underground hallways of the severed floor. The sets for the severed floor were built on three sound stages. The combined space ran up to 130 feet long, which is nearly half a football field. It gave the production team plenty of room to stage walking scenes like this one. As he walks, he puts a hand in his pocket to find the tissue he'd been crying into just a few minutes earlier. It has no meaning for the severed mark, so he tosses it in a waste can as he passes. This tiny detail held a huge amount of information for me. One of the things I first thought when watching Severance was, they're in a matrix style reality created by a computer. I thought maybe when a severed employee gets on the elevator, they're actually jacking into the lumen matrix where everything they experience during the workday is being created in their minds. The tissue kills this theory. It's a real object Mark brought with him from the outside world to the severed floor. If the tissue's real, The severed floor is real, and so is what we experience there with the characters. Series creator Dan Erickson has confirmed in interviews, everything we're seeing is really happening. Nothing is being created in the severed employees' minds. Mark walks, and walks, and coughs a few times, and walks some more, and sniffs. This sequence is very long. From where he begins at the elevator until he reaches the door to his work area is a full 90 seconds. We don't see another employee anywhere along the way. This walk tells us a couple of things. First off, this place is massive. Imagine walking in any building for 90 seconds at the pace Mark is walking. Even if he's going in circles, you'd still cover a huge amount of area. It also tells us Mark is an old hand at this. He doesn't hesitate for a second. He makes every turn, every weird little cut without a pause or a misstep. Mark passes a tiny sign that reads Macro Data Refinement. If you can believe the coloring, the work area where Mark arrives is both a very safe space and a very severed space. The carpet and ceiling panels are both green. The walls of the cubicles are green. Space does not seem to be an issue below ground at Lumen. The huge area Mark steps into contains four small workstations arranged in a cubicle pinwheel at the center of a very large, low-ceilinged room. Mark appears to be alone in the space. He steps to one of the workstations in the cluster and turns it on. The workstations here on the severed floor are dated. They are old. These things have deep, heavy cathode ray tube monitors with standard def 8-bit graphics. The keyboards are huge and clunky. They're a standard QWERTY keyboard with a trackball where you'd expect to find a number pad. These workstations looked like they might have been a hot computer item in the 80s or early 90s if they actually existed. These units were created for severance. The real-world correlation to these might be the all-in-one iMac if it had been made in the Soviet Union in 1987. As Mark gets a folder out and prepares to work, let's talk for a quick minute about the perceptions of a severed worker. There are a lot of theories out there as to what actually happens during the severance procedure. Some go Freudian, saying severance is separating the id from the ego, or the ego from the superego. I don't agree. In the Refiners Orientation booklet, the process is described as having your perceptual chronologies surgically split. Following the severance procedure, your access to memories will be spatially dictated. This is a fancy way of saying what you remember is dependent on where you are. The writer of the Lexington letter describes it saying her Annie's knowledge had been filtered. She knows what beer is, but couldn't name a specific brand. She's aware she's in the United States, but can't name a specific state or draw a map of the country. I call these institutional memories. Things you've learned throughout your life experience and then apply to your future activities are allowed through the filter as necessary memories. This is why Ennies are already potty trained, they can feed themselves, they know how to speak English, etc. This is institutional knowledge which is based on memory, but it's not referenced as chronological memory. Specific chronological day-to-day memories about things that happen to you or happen around you are what gets split. Instead of having one continuous timeline of your life, you now have two. When you're on one timeline, you have no knowledge of the other timeline. You can only access those things that have happened to you on the severed floor when you are on the severed floor. I think there is a real-world parallel to this phenomenon, but it's rare. Patients who suffer from dissociative identity disorder, DID, sometimes called multiple personalities, are reported to experience this stopping and starting of consciousness. In the book Sybil, the main character describes having her memories disrupted, She might be in a house, married with a family, and suddenly she stops remembering anything. When she picks up the thread of memory, it feels like no time has elapsed, when in reality, it might be months later and she's hundreds of miles from what she considers home. What's happened in the interim is control of the body and consciousness is taken over by another personality. When an alternate personality takes over, the main personality just stops. It's not sleep, it's just no perception at all with no sense of the passage of time. This seems to be the same phenomenon experienced by severed employees. When the elevator door closes, perception stops until the doors open again on the severed floor. Mark's computer is booting up. He opens a couple of file folders on his desk. We get a great long shot looking at the room. There are analog clocks on both facing walls. Between them is a sea of green carpeting. Jeremy Hindle calls it hideous, but it was the winner out of six different shades he tested. This one graded well, and he said it was least offensive to the viewer. The four workstations clustered together look tiny in the middle of the room. Aside from the clocks, there's nothing on the walls of the room or on the panels of the cubicles. Mark has a picture sitting on his desk. There's also a lighted lucite block with a caricature of his head in it. Underneath the caricature, it says Mark S. Allentown. The geography of Severance is sketchy at best. Allentown, Pennsylvania is about 90 minutes from Holmdel, New Jersey, where the Bell Labs building is actually located. Later, we'll see some mail with his state identification on it of P.E. Pennsylvania uses the two-letter abbreviation P.A., Either this branch of Lumen is in its own secret state, or the state of Pennsylvania abbreviates itself as P.E. in the world of severance. Allentown on this plaque appears to be a severance red herring. Allentown is a fairly well-known city in Pennsylvania. Hey, Billy Joel even did that song about it. So, our outie heads go immediately to Allentown, the city in Pennsylvania. We have to remember this is any Mark's crystal cube. He doesn't know anything about Allentown, Pennsylvania. This is most likely recognizing his outstanding work refining a file named Allentown. We'll hear about his freshman fluke later in the season. Sure, whatever he did in the file might have affected something in the city, but Mark doesn't know anything about the city. As with all the other perks a refiner can earn, the crystal display is all about the file. Mark coughs again as he's setting up his desk. We hear a voice. You're breathing shitty? Mark doesn't seem surprised there's someone else in the room. Sorry. You sick? Maybe. Petey was sniffling yesterday.
2: Mm, if you breathe on me, I'll rip your larynx out.
1: We cut to the reverse angle of the cubicle cluster where we see a heavy-set, bearded man already hunched over his keyboard working. Preventing illness seems to be an ongoing concern at Lumen, especially on the severed floor. There's an entire page on proper hand washing in the orientation booklet. One of the suggestions, sing Happy Birthday to Kier as you're scrubbing. Several employees are told to wash their hands at least 10 times a day. A stapler and several tiny items are sitting on the bearded man's desk next to his keyboard. He seems to be working intently as the two banter back and forth about Mark's possible cold. I feel like ripping out my germ-ridden larynx would
2: get you sicker than just me breathing on you. Nah, endorphins. Oh. Petey better not be out for the day because I'm about zero seconds from wrapping the Tumwater file, and he needs to process it. We
1: cut to Mark's computer screen where an ancient-looking animation of the Lumen logo assembles itself on the screen. The graphic then changes to a monochromatic representation of an old Rolodex. This animated graphic would have been state-of-the-art in about 1983. Flipping through the graphic shows his single name on each card. We see names like Bellingham, Culpepper, and Coleman fly by. Mark stops in the Ds and selects the Drainsville file. A grid opens on the screen with the word Drainsville in the upper left of the screen. The upper right shows the file as 19% complete. At the bottom of the screen, we see five bins. The Orientation Handbook goes into quite a bit of detail about these bins. The five bins are each filled with numbers that fall into one of four categories. As the bins are filled, you can see the percentage of each of the four types of numbers contained in each bin. The idea is to fill each of the five bins evenly with the refined numbers. Once the bins are filled and the file is at 100%, the refiner's job is done on that file. What exactly is being accomplished by this process? You can find several hundred hours of YouTube videos attempting to answer this question. The numbers are identified by four different two-letter abbreviations: WO, FC, DR, and MA. These are abbreviations for the four different tempers identified by Lumen founder and original CEO Kier Egan. The abbreviations stand for Woe, Frolic dread and malice this is where we start to touch on the cult of kier kier egan's trajectory as a ceo seems to have gone far beyond mere industrialist he was also a theologian philosopher scientist and prolific author Season 1 just starts to delve into the cult of Keir. There are hymns, altars, paintings, there are Bible-sized and even Bible-formatted books written by and about Kier. Most of his work seems to be based on the taming of these four tempers and implementing what he calls his nine principles of life— We are never told exactly how the refiners are interacting with the tempers through the numbers. Helly isn't given any instructions for refining. She's told she'll just eventually feel it. Even though she's protesting her status as an employee, she does feel the numbers and is able to successfully refine a group into the proper bin. We can see the process has a physical effect on her. Severed employees are told they were chosen for their particular talents, so the feelings they get about the numbers might be a heightened sense or skill only found in certain people. Or it could be pure hype designed to make the innies feel better about the drudgery of their existence. There has to be something more going on here than benign number segregation. What they're really doing becomes the central mystery of the entire series. Mark and the bearded guy are catty-corner in the cubicle cluster so they can see each other through a space in the wall panels. The bearded guy is nothing but rapid-fire shop talk. If
2: he doesn't process today, they won't know until Tuesday of next week typical Lumen bullshit careful guy
1: we have no idea what he's talking about but it sounds like the kind of chatter you'd hear in any specialized office environment any profession insurance agents car dealers bankers realtors they all have their own specialized vocabulary words you only hear at work in that particular profession it sounds like he's worried about getting delayed on something Mark warns him to be careful about the chatter as we see another man enter the workspace. He's tall, gray haired, and appears to be at least a generation older than Mark or the bearded guy. The way Mark reacts to his arrival, we think he might be a supervisor until he speaks. Hi, kids. What's for dinner?
2: God damn it, Irv. We warned you. About the greeting? You were kidding. No, we sincerely hate
1: it. What follows is genial office banter. Herb's an old timer and a bit of an annoyance. So Mark and the bearded man who Irv identifies as Dylan have teamed up against Irv. As they're talking, Dylan continues refining. We see shots of his screen as animated numbers fly into an open bin. The abbreviations of the tempers are visible. The conversation continues. Irv knows about the Tumwater File and how badly Dylan wants to get it wrapped up today if only Petey would process. But where's Petey? Petey seems to be the fourth member of the cubicle cluster, and his chair is still empty. No Petey? We think he's sick. Dylan mentions earning a perk called a waffle party. Irv sneers at the mention of the prize. These
2: perks are so out
0: of hand when we process a file in the old days, they'd shake our hand and fill up the creamer.
1: I
2: still don't buy the actually incentivized creamer. They did, and back then we were grateful for it.
1: Incentives are a big deal on the lumen-severed floor. In the orientation handbook, there's a whole page devoted to the incentive schedule. Reading it explains a lot of the items we see on Dylan's desk. Also, as we get a reverse angle of Dylan's cubicle, we can see a couple of things hanging on his cubicle wall. Dylan's the only one with anything on his cubicle walls. Reading through the list of incentives explains what we're seeing. Any refiner completing 10% of a file gets a pencil eraser. Now, these are the nice ones, the big pink gummy ones. You can see several of them sitting on Dylan's desk. Completing 25% of a file earns the refiner a finger trap. Sometimes known as the Chinese finger trap or Chinese handcuffs, these fiendishly clever woven devices have been a staple of county fairs for generations. Completing 75% of a file earns the refiner a Music Dance Experience, or MDE. No details are included on the incentive list, but be ready, we will experience an MDE this season. Completing 100% of a file, which seems to be a fairly rare occurrence, earns the refiner a caricature portrait. This is what we're seeing on Dylan's cubicle walls. We will get some close-ups later, and careful, ladies, they are hot. It's noted at the bottom of the refiner's list of incentives, any refiner who has displayed exemplary work may be declared refiner of the quarter by their department chief. In this case, Petey is the department chief. If they are so designated, the refiner of the quarter will receive a compensatory waffle party. Like the MDE, no details are given about the waffle party, but we will be experiencing one of those during this season as well. Prepare to be shocked. There's way more goat than you'd expect. In a world where sales or production incentives at major companies might range from a new big screen TV to a new car... A pencil eraser seems a bit juvenile. Well, that's the point. The ennies have no frame of reference. Even though they look and talk like adults, they're motivated like children. A range of incentives you'd trade tickets for at Chuck E. Cheese or the prizes you'd find on a carnival midway have huge value to an innie because they don't know anything else. Irving seems to have matured enough within the world of the severed floor to realize these prizes aren't as motivating to him anymore. Dylan is still very into the rewards. The joshing continues until we hear a knock on the door. Before we see who's there, we need to take a moment to meet the two new members of Mark's work cluster on the severed floor. The bearded guy with the energy of a used car salesman three units from quota is Dylan. Dylan. He's being played by Zach Cherry. Zach has created a character who is instantly in your face. He's arrogant, self-assured, and aggressively competitive. He's also pretty hilarious. Zach's performing career kicked off in 2015. He started barnstorming through TV series, picking up guest star shots and a few multi-episode recurring characters. Zach has amassed 44 credits on his IMDb profile in the past seven years because he works a lot While playing Dylan, he's also appearing as the voice of Wolf in the very hip Amy Poehler-created animated series, Duncanville. Hey, Mrs.
2: Harris. black type paintball event? Nice.
0: What are you doing here?
2: My mom's out of town, so I'm showering and doing laundry.
0: Your mother's not here for Mother's Day?
2: Her and her boyfriend are gone for a month. It's looting season in Tornado Alley, and they need a new
1: flat screen.
0: Oh, if they find a stand mixer. Oh, God, what am I saying?
1: Foil-wrapped hot dog, perhaps?
2: No. Well,
1: yes. Irv, the other member of this group of macro data refiners, is being played by veteran character actor John Turturro. Turturro is a Brooklyn-born actor of Italian descent. He's consistently brilliant in anything he does. Turturro made his acting debut in 1980 as an uncredited day player in Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull. Throughout the 80s, Turturro appeared almost exclusively in movies. He picked up roles in recognizable titles such as Desperately Seeking Susan, To Live and Die in L.A., and the Woody Allen comedy, Hannah and Her Sisters. His association with Joel and Ethan Cohen led to high-concept projects like Barton Fink, his memorable turn in The Big Lebowski.
0: I see you roll your way to the semis. Dios mio, man. Liam and me, we're gonna fuck you up. Yeah, well, you know, that's just, like, uh, your opinion, man. Let me tell you something, pandeo. You pull any of your crazy shit with us, you flash a piece out on the lanes, I'll take it away from you and stick it up your ass and pull the fucking trigger till it goes click. Jesus. You said it, man. Nobody fucks with the
2: Jesus.
1: And starring alongside George Clooney in the classic, "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?" The teacher
2: said it absolved for him, not for the law. Surprise you? Pete. I gave you credit for more brains than Delmer. But they was witnesses seen us redeemed. That's not the issue, Delmer. Even if it did put you square with the Lord, the state of Mississippi's
1: a little more hard-nosed. You should've joined us, Everett. It couldn't have hurt none. Hell, at least it would've washed away the stink of that pile He's worked consistently since the 90s with nearly 120 acting credits, landing multiple movie roles per year. John's at a point in his career where he can pick and choose what he does. Turturro said several times he chose to be a part of Severance because it was such a unique concept and it was so well written. While we're meeting folks, we need to see who is knocking at the door. A good-looking black man who appears to be in his early 30s steps into macrodata refining. Good morning, macro Data refinement. Irv jumps up from his chair and stands at attention. Hi, Mr. Milchik. The other two lean back in their chairs but don't stand. Irv seems to be from another time when there was greater respect for your supervisors. Also, as we'll discover, Irv has some military background. Seth Milchik is being played by Tramell Tillman, one of the breakout stars of the series. I always want to Midwesternize his name and call him Trammell. It's pronounced Trammell. He was born in Washington, D.C. in June of 1985, but grew up in Largo, Maryland. Tillman started his acting career in 2015 on the series Difficult People. He's not seven credits in seven years, all of those who come on TV series, most with multiple episode arcs. Trammell has some fun stories to tell about getting just the right shape for his mustache and why he keeps his pants so high as Milchik. We'll get into some of his motivations later in the series. Interesting to note about the name Milchik, the editor of the newspaper in Topeka, who claimed to know someone higher up at Lumen, also had the last name Milchik. This is the same editor who quickly told the reporter to move on and forget about the Lexington letter as a possible story. Milchik is no-nonsense. He's on a mission. Mark. Could I have a word? Milchik is soft spoken and all smiles, but we instantly get an undercurrent of threat and just a hint of menace. Mark immediately jumps up from his desk, closes his papers, and steps towards Milchik. Irv shoots Mark a sympathetic look while Dylan studiously gets back to his keyboard with an attitude of nothing to see here. They don't know if Mark is in trouble. But it looks like Mark is in trouble. Milchik leads Mark out the macro data refinement door. The samba music begins as Mark follows Milchik down the hall. They walk silently for a while, Mark staying just a step or two behind Milchik. Milchik is the first to break the silence. Last time you saw Miss Cobell, she was in her old office. Now she's in her new office. It's a completely different office. Mark doesn't respond to the information about Ms. Cobell's office. He's more concerned about why he was summoned. What's this about? Milchik ignores him and continues. She'd never say so, but I know a compliment about the office would just make her day. He gives Mark a little smile as they turn a corner. They enter an office space with the sign administration by the door. Milchik strides into the office. Mark hangs back a bit, walking behind him. We reverse angle as Milchik walks through one of the many nondescript white doors found all over the severed floor. He knocks, and we hear a voice off camera:
0: "Mark, come in. Shut the thing."
1: Mark remembers Milchik's tip and gestures to the room. "Nice office."
0: "Ugh, oh, it's horrid."
2: "Yeah, the old one
1: was better." So, what was that? Was Milchik setting Mark up, or is that just the way Cobell takes a compliment? Milchik steps to a position behind the desk. A woman with shoulder-length gray hair, who we assume is Miss Cobell, steps from behind a door panel carrying a box. She immediately undermines Mark with an offhand comment. Oh,
0: you look awful. You look hungover.
1: This is a reference to Mark's eyes from his parking lot crying jag, which he doesn't remember, coupled with nights spent drinking. She tells Mark to sit as Milchik is setting up a monitor speaker on Cobell's desk. This one looks exactly like the one we saw on the conference table in the cold open. Cobell explains the speaker by saying... The
0: board will be joining us remotely
1: today. There are soft surges of static coming from the speaker, but no words.
0: I have Mark S. at my desk.
1: There's silence, a bit of static... Is Mark supposed to speak? He decides maybe he should. Oh, uh, hello. Cobell is sitting passively watching Mark squirm. I
2: assume this is about me acting as department chief today. Okay, uh, well, I mean, I've subbed for PD before,
1: so it shouldn't be... PD
0: is no longer with this company.
1: Mark looks shocked. His head snaps back like he's been slapped. I'm sorry? Melchick offers his condolences. He tells Mark, You guys are one of my favorite office friendships. Mark is shocked at losing his friend. He wants to know what happened. We'd love to tell you, but unfortunately, non-disclosure policy forbids.
0: We'd be aiding an assault on Petey's privacy by you.
1: Mark is still stunned, but this subtle accusation shuts him down. Cabell seems excited to move on with the purpose of today's meeting.
0: Mark, would you place your key card on my desk?
1: She opens the drawer of her desk as Mark slips off the lanyard. Cabell stands, and Mark follows suit.
0: Mark asks, at this time, I confer upon you the freedom to serve here in the advanced role of Macrodata Refinement Department Chief. Congratulations.
1: We see a close-up of the desktop. Mark slides his blue keycard with the lumen water droplet on it over to Cabell as she slides an identical keycard with lanyard back towards Mark. They each pick up the other card. The credentials on this new keycard must have Mark upgraded to department chief. Cobel invoked the name Keir. This is the first time anyone has actually mentioned Keir Egan, founder and first CEO of Lumen. The word Keir is Gaelic. It means the dark one. This is a strange reference. Cobel gives Mark the freedom to serve Kier. I don't know for certain, but I don't think executives who are promoted at Ford are given the freedom to serve Henry or if executive promotions at Walmart are in service to Sam. It's a little weird to us, but on the severed floor, this is what they're taught. So this is what they know. As Mark is slipping the lanyard over his head, Cobell remembers something. Oh,
0: a handshake is available upon request.
1: Mark considers this option for several seconds before answering. Thank you, may I have a handshake? Adam Scott's line reading on this is amazing. Cobell looks a bit surprised and possibly annoyed by Mark's decision. We hear a burst of static from the board speaker. Cobell grudgingly offers Mark her hand. As they shake, Milchik is coming around the desk carrying a three-ring binder. He hands the binder to Mark. It looks like Mark is getting his first assignment as chief.
0: I know you haven't run a training before, but Irving will be there to shadow.
1: Cobel slips into a mouthful of corporate mumbo jumbo.
0: Just stick to the flow chart and escalate properly depending on dialectics. You'll be fine.
1: Milchik starts to tell Mark he can take a few minutes. Mark seems ready to power through, even though he is grieving the sudden loss of his friend. He cuts Milchik off, saying he's fine. As Mark turns to leave the office, we hear a burst of static from the speaker on Cobell's desk. Mark turns. Oh, and uh, thank you to the board as well. He pauses like he's waiting for some kind of a response. The speaker is silent. Cobell delivers one of the greatest lines of the episode.
0: The board won't be contributing to this meeting. Vocal.
1: Don't you wish you could do that? I want to get on a Zoom meeting sometime and tell everyone I won't be contributing vocally. As we leave Cobell's office, yes, that's Patricia Arquette playing Cobell. No, we aren't going to meet her just yet. We will be running into Patricia again later in the episode. We'll check out her acting bio then. But I'm afraid that's going to have to wait until next time, refiners. There is so much to get to in this first episode. It's necessary to break this file up into two parts. We'll pick it up next time in the interview room with Mark, only we'll be on the other side of the glass this time. Thank you for listening to Severed. For now, shut down your workstation. It is time to leave for the day. Please leave by the elevator and make sure to stagger your exits.
0: You've been listening to Severed, the ultimate Severance podcast. Severed is written... Produced and hosted by Alan
1: Stair. Severed is not endorsed by Red Hour Productions, Endeavor Content or Apple TV+. Plus. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Severance,
0: the Severance logo and all video and audio of Severance and Severance characters are registered trademarks of Red Hour, Endeavor Content, Apple TV+, Plus, or their respective copyright holders.
1: Please make sure to leave a 5-star rating and review for Severed at Apple Podcasts.